Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. So we're glad that you're here watching with us. Let's bow our heads in prayer once more. Uh, Lord, we ask for your grace. We ask for your kindness as we submit ourselves to your word. Um, We know that uh, whatever it is we experience in our world, whatever it is we experience in our hearts, whatever it is we experience in our communities or in our relationships, uh, you have spoken in such a way that the gospel changes everything we encounter. And so we ask today that you work miracles in our minds and in our hearts and Lord willing in our hands that our lives are changed in terms of how we live because of what you've given us in your word. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So we've been going through the book of 1 Peter here at Sovereign Hope, and what Peter is after in writing to a collection of churches across kind of Asia Minor is he's after two things. He's after the identity of the Christian, who a Christian is, and he's after the conduct of a Christian. That's how a Christian acts. And speaking of identity, he's been hammering foundationally that when you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, You're born again. You don't get a new hobby on Sunday morning. You don't just get bumper stickers for the back of your car. You don't just change your Facebook profile. You are born again because of what Christ has done for you. And because of that, you're unique. You're new. You're different in terms of how you act. We've seen time and time again in this book that nothing you do can earn you salvation. Only Jesus' works do that. But when you are saved, it changes everything that you do. You can't do anything to be saved, but when you're saved, it changes everything that you do. And that includes how we act towards the church. We saw at the beginning of chapter 2. Changes how you interact towards the government. We saw that last week. How it interacts uh, in terms of the workplace or those who mistreat you. And today, we're going to see how it changes the way you act when you're married. More specifically, Peter's going to talk about to husbands and to wives and give them guidance for how they're to act when marriage isn't all roses. And that's kind of been what Peter has assumed since the middle of chapter 2. He's assumed that Christians are living in circumstances that aren't as good as they could be. He's after the conduct of Christians, not just when life is easy, but when life is hard. When God gave us his word, he didn't give us some idealistic principle that couldn't be applied in a broken world. Instead, he gave us something that makes sense and helps us when things are broken. And make no mistake... Marriage is sometimes hard. And if you were to go to Amazon or to Google and search for help when marriage gets hard, you might find all sorts of things to help. You might find negotiation tactics, self-care tips, calls to cut and run, maybe subtle ways to change how you act or how you wear to maybe manipulate the power balance in marriage back to your favor. But Peter here, in the face of all that, is going to cut straight to the point. And he's going to give two principles for Christian conduct inside of marriage. That is, he wants us to obey God and he wants us to love the other person. If Peter were to write a book, it'd be relatively short. It'd be those two things, obey God and love the other person. And that seems simple, but what Peter's beginning to do here is he's going to begin to show us the nuts and bolts of what that looks like and those nuts and bolts might challenge us. Specifically, for his message to wives today, His message to wives is countercultural and even offensive to some people. But just like everything else Peter has been presenting so far in the book of 1 Peter, it should shock us if we don't understand the gospel. 
If we miss the gospel, everything Peter's calling us to do makes no sense at all. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. The gospel says my greatest problem of sin was met when I turned and repented and Jesus took my punishment. The gospel says I don't need to fight for my own good because my own good couldn't get me anywhere. The gospel says that my identity is now in Jesus Christ. My hope is in his never-ending love for me. And my eternal reward is as secure as it could ever be because it's not dependent on me, but on Christ's completed work in my place. If we don't understand the implications of the gospel, then everything we encounter in this world will always be seen as something that we have to fight for in order for our own rights, our own privilege, our own security. But when we see that in the gospel, Jesus has done everything for us, and through repentance and faith that's given to us, then we realize that in Jesus, all of our needs have already been met. And when Jesus has met all of our needs, we can begin to lay aside things that culture says are exclusive or essential needs. I'm sorry to use the word essential. It's kind of a weird word in this day and age. But we can actually lay aside things because of what Jesus has done. And a posture of a life that begins to lay aside things for the sake of the gospel is defined by Peter with one word, a word we saw back in chapter 1, verse 8, where Peter says this to Christians, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What's the word Peter uses to describe walking out a Christian life out of an overflow of the gospel? Joy. This text, and everything included in it, is for people who want joy. This text, and everything included for it, is for people who, who has had the joy of the gospel saturate their hearts. But as we encounter this, a text on marriage, there are two groups of people in here, two groups of people watching online. There are those who are married and those who are not. And I hope you maybe know where you lie in that equation. And to those who are not married, my hope is that you understand this text. Because this is important for you. You don't get a free pass for this text because two things happen when you begin to understand what Peter is saying here. First... Is it's my hope that actually through this passage, your own thoughts on dating and marriage would be changed. The best medicine for your future marriage is the preventative medicine of understanding the gospel, of seeing this side of that weighty commitment, what it looks like to be married and what it means for you in terms of your future relationships. But secondly, it's helpful to understand this text because this text equips you to help disciple you're married friends. There's no castes of Christian. Married Christians are not more Christian than single Christians. So what this does is this helps you know how you can move to those who are married in your community group or in your neighborhood, and you can actually minister to them with a biblical understanding of the gospel. You see, our life experiences are always limited. If we can only help each other follow Jesus in things that we ourselves have experienced, we're only capable of discipling ourselves, and we know how miserably we fail in that. But the Bible here comes, and it gives us experiences rooted in God's objective truth that we can then go to others and help them follow Jesus even when we ourselves are in a different stage of life. 
So I pray that you would understand this text. But for those of you in here who are married, I pray that we not only understand it, but that we actually practically apply it. That we might be able to joyfully and immediately apply this text in our own lives, regardless of what the cost is. And we see today a big picture of this. When marriage is hard, the gospel equips us to act in a way that's good. When marriage is hard, the gospel equips us to act in a way that's good. And we're going to see this in two parts. First, we're going to see that godly wives adorn themselves with the beauty of the gospel. And then we're going to see that godly husbands live with the grace of the gospel. So Peter's going to encourage wives to be adorned with the beauty of the gospel. He's going to call on husbands to live with the grace of the gospel. That's what we're going to see in the passage that that Stephen just read for us. But before we get into that, I want to address a seeming imbalance in this text. Because we, by sinful nature, are score keepers. And so we'll read this text and we will keep score. And we'll notice that Paul gives six verses addressed to wives and one verse addressed to husbands. And we would say, well, this isn't fair. Why is it imbalanced like this? But I want us to notice two things to help us understand this tension. First, we're going to look at context, and second, we're going to look at tone. Contextually, in the culture of the day, when Peter was writing this, women were considered broadly in culture to be inferior to men. Because of that, they were considered to have poor judgment. They probably shouldn't be put in positions of authority, and they should just be quiet and listen to their husbands. And an implication of that theology, or this not a theology, an implication of that worldview was that children and wives who were under authority were rarely spoken to or addressed in public. You would simply address the head. And so what Peter's doing here is countercultural. He is speaking to women and showing that you ought to be addressed. You are just as much created in the image of God as the man. He is speaking at length. And nowhere in Scripture do we see a a, a theological presupposition that says that women are inferior to men. In fact, in verse 7, Peter's going to make the opposite point. He's going to fight for equality in the eyes of God when it comes to salvation. Contrary to what secular culture tries to tell you, Christianity has been far more progressive historically when it comes to equal treatment of genders than any liberal philosophy of thought. The Bible affirms that all of us were created in the image of God, but there are distinctions inside of that. There are distinct genders. There are distinct ways that husbands and wives are to interact, that hold true over time. But those distinctions are not based off of capacity or value or worth. The created distinctions between males and females and husbands and wives are there because of the glory of God. God put those there because he wanted men and women as complementing genders to display his glory in a unique way. It has nothing to do with value or worth or significance and everything to do with God's zeal for his glory and his love for his people. This is what we see in Ephesians 5 when he alludes to marriage as an allegory of Christ in the church. But because of the cultural tone of the day, women, because of their nature of being subordinate to men, were the most vulnerable. This fits not only with what's happening in the secular culture of the day, but this fits with the culture that Peter's writing to. Since the, begin, or the middle of chapter 2, Peter has begun speaking to those who were on the more vulnerable side of the power imbalance. He writes to citizens, not senators, Slaves, not masters. 
And here he writes, writes to wives more than husbands. And so contextually, there's something more going on here than we see in just a cursory reading of the text. But also we notice that there's a distinct tone in the text. And what I want to do is I want to read for us verses 1 through 6 addressed to the wives. And I want you to see if you can hear or feel the tone, if you had to describe Peter's tone towards those whom he's writing to. So this is verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is, how the women of, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So contrary to what we'll see when we get to verse 7, speaking to husbands, Peter's primary tone towards wives is that of encouragement. He is urging wives on. He is empowering them in the gospel. He is reminding them of their hope. And when we get to husbands, Peter begins not less to take a tone of encouragement and more to take a tone of admonishment. And here Peter's encouraging wives. And what is he encouraging wives with? Well, this is our first point we see today. Is that godly wives are to be adorned with the beauty of the gospel. Godly wives are to be adorned with the beauty of the gospel. And what does this look like? Well, in verse 6, he says it looks like submitting to your husbands. In 2.13, Peter calls Christians to be subject to the government. In 2.18, he calls servants to be subject to their master. And here he calls wives to be subject to their own husbands. And this is an important detail to notice. Peter is not calling all women to submit to all men, which would have been normal in the culture of the day. He's not calling girlfriends to submit to boyfriends, nor is he calling upon husbands, or do we ever see in Scripture him calling upon husbands to ensure that their wife is being submissive? Instead, we see the voluntary imperative that accompanies marriage. Wives are to willingly submit to their own husbands. Peter's not after forced subjugation. Instead, he's after a willing submission which stems from a gospel hope. That's really what we see in both passages to the wives and to the husbands. We see Peter after gospel conduct, but that gospel conduct is rooted in gospel hope. What Christ has done for us changes what we do. And the nature of this gospel conduct is important to understand because in reading this, let's face it, uh, perhaps you in here, and certainly our culture when they read this, they could walk away thinking that the good Christian wife is like a Stepford wife. If you've seen the movie or read the book, it's kind of this conspiracy book where the men of this neighborhood get together and they genetically alter their wives to basically be robots who just obey everything that they say. And they kind of take in young wives and they convert them into this Stepford wife. But not only does Peter's command to husbands prohibit an understanding of a wife like this, but Peter's commands to wives actually prohibits a wife like this. We do see that in being subject, it requires obedience. We said in verse 6 where he said Sarah obeyed Abraham. 
But we also see that in this text, Peter makes room for women to not obey their husbands, or at least to not follow in their ways. Peter calls on all wives in this text to be subject to their husbands. And I think we can assume that most of the wives in Peter's churches were married to Christian husbands. But he begins to kind of throw this caveat in there. You see in verse 1, where he says this, You should do this even when some husbands do not obey. There are wives who will have unbelieving husbands who do not obey. There are wives who will have believing husbands who disobey. But in those moments, Peter is saying wives are not to cave to the weight of a husband's sin. Instead, they are to continue to do good and to obey God. And at this time, there is a unique cultural weight that accompanied a woman's conversion if she was married because her conversion actually put her in tension and in descent of a husband's authority. The Greek philosopher Plutarch said this, He said, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. In that culture, wives were obligated to worship what their husband worshipped. And Peter's writing to women who, when the gospel grasps, grasps their heart, Christ calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light, they are immediately encountered, if their husband is a non-believer, with this tension of either hiding their Christianity or throwing it away. And here Peter says to them, he empowers them to be independent of their husbands in worship, but submissive, respectful, and beautiful in all other ways. Worshiping a different God was not to poison their tone, their posture, their affection towards their husband, but it was to be distinct. They were to obey God, not false gods, but they were to respect and submit to their husbands. In fact, when you read this text, Peter encourages a sort of fearlessness in women that in any other context, I think would be applauded by culture. Did you see what he's writing in verse uh, six? As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter does not see women as this passive and mild wallflower. Instead, he sees them as formidable and fearless in their faith. Whether it be in calling all citizens to submit to their government or wives to their husbands, the Bible never paints submission as concession or subjugation. It is a posture of firm resolve and gospel strength. True submission, there is wrong submission, there is sinful submission, there is submission that is thoughtless, but that is not what the Bible is after. The Bible, we saw this last week in uh, chapter 2, That submission of a Christian does not stem from a place of weakness, but it it actually stems from a place of liberty. Because you have been freed from the bonds of sin, you are free to obey God even if that looks like submission at times. Wives can continue to obey God and love their husbands through their godly living because they themselves have been freed by Jesus' submission to the cross for their sake. 
Remember what precedes this. We looked at this just last week. There was, you know, six days between us reading this passage and this one, but this is right next to each other. Look at what happens right before this text in 1 Peter 2, 23 through 25. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sin in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, it's only when you realize the hope we have in Jesus who submitted himself to death, even death on a cross, that you wives in here can do what Peter's calling you to do in this text. And that's because amidst this gospel conduct of submission is a deep gospel hope that drives all of our action. And he gives two gospel hopes in this text. And when he's speaking of adornment, he's using this illustration of putting it on. And when we put on hope, it's visible in all the spheres of our life. And there's two hopes in this text for the Christian wife. And the first hope is that your godly conduct might actually convert your husband. That's what he says in verse 1. He says that they might be won without a word by the godly conduct of their wives. I've known, and I pray I continue to know more, wives who, while in a marriage, are converted by the wonderful truth of the gospel. And yet, I've seen times where those wives are saved while the husband has not. And I've seen that wife go with evangelistic joy and urgency and and plead with their husband and share with them this wonderful news that saved them and can save them too, this thing that makes sense of all of life, the wonderful love of Jesus who died in my place to give me something I could never earn on my own. And I've seen those husbands remain unresponsive. And I can only imagine how heartbreaking that could be. I know how heartbreaking it is in my own personal efforts of evangelism where people I know casually don't respond to the gospel, let alone someone I live with. And I say, well, if they didn't respond to that, what hope do I have? But here, Peter holds out hope. Hope that your righteous, godly actions might be the unspoken words that awaken your husband to the beauty of the gospel. You see, it's not a female problem. It's a human problem that when we're at our wit's end or we feel exhausted, we could either become passive and completely give up or we could become nagging in our conduct. But Peter holds out the posture of a winsome nature and a respectful response. That in continuing to serve them and love them, we are showing how Christ has served and loved us. Instead of nagging or berating or in an exacerbated form, speaking out in anger, wives are to show the modeling of Christ's service to you when you were yet a sinner. That's the wonderful gospel principle in this. You, each and every one of you, if you were saved by Jesus, were served by someone who moved towards you in your sin, served in a way that no wife could ever serve you. Jesus knows the brokenness of your heart. 
He knows the grossness and the misconduct you have given to him. And yet Jesus has moved towards you in love. If you've never heard that before, this is the kind of care you need. This is the answer to your greatest problem. Is a Jesus who, when you were stuck in sin, moved towards you with love and gave himself up for you. I pray that you would repent and you would see what Jesus has done for your good. And now when we understand that aspect of the gospel, this application begins to make sense. Because the expectation is that a godly wife would do this because she's experienced this. She knows what it's like to be loved when she was in sin. Thoughtless subjugation has no place in a godly wife. Instead, their action is robed in this active, steadfast gospel reflection. And Peter continues here because instead of attempting to please or to win the husband back by putting on the adornment of man, by braiding your hair, putting on jewelry, or keeping a nice Instagram page, he calls them to witness to their husband with the beauty of grace. Look at the connection in the repeated words Peter is building here. Talking about the gospel in general in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So here we see this wonderful reward of the gospel. And look at where that comes back and shapes the conduct of a godly wife in verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. To be a Christian is to know that nothing of value in this world has saved you. Peter already talked about that. You weren't ransomed by silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. And so a Christian wife in this context is to adorn herself with the beauty not of physical things that fail, but of the imperishable things which save. That she might be a living, breathing reflection of Christ's goodness and sacrificial service to those who are broken. And I know men who sit here in this building today who are saved by Jesus because of the wordless witness of their wives. Wives who refuse to relent. Wives who refuse to give up. Wives who fearlessly and boldly lived out the gospel with gospel obedience and love for their husbands. And I pray God adds many more women to this mix. I pray that God adds many more men to this mix. But I want to say something on behalf of all believing husbands, and that's that God's salvation saves us effectively, but it doesn't fully fix us. We're still going to be knuckleheads. We're still going to be boneheads. We're still going to need grace in moments of sinful disobedience. You see, the first gospel hope is that the action of these wives might win their husband by the beauty of the gospel. But the second hope is that your actions actually remind you of the God who never fails you. The God who is so much better and so much more pleased with you and so much more in love with you and so much more capable to love you than any husband ever could. 
Look at what he says again in verses 5 through 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, if any of you, most of us have been reading through the F260 Bible reading plan. If you've read the story of Abraham and Sarah, don't do anything they do as a married couple. (laughs) It is the worst example of how to care for each other in like all of scripture. And yet here, Peter's using it as a model. And it gets funnier when we actually get into, okay, so there's this time where Sarah is calling Abraham Lord and not capital L Lord, not like he is God, but Lord like master, like um, my liege, if you will. And so the context of this, there is one time in Genesis where Sarah calls Abraham Lord. You want to know what time it is? It's when the angel of the Lord comes to nearly dead Abraham and nearly dead Sarah and says, hey, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Sarah is listening from her tent. And look at what Sarah says in Genesis 18, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I worn out? And my Lord is old? Shall I have pleasure? What's the context? God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Sarah laughs because her husband's a bag of bones. And yet she calls him Lord. She recognizes the potential failure of Abraham. She has no hope that Abraham could ever conceive or cause her to conceive. I also have hope he can't conceive. And yet, eventually, Sarah believes. And I can tell you this. It is not that all of a sudden, Abraham got a big box of Nutrisystem and just looked young and svelte. (laughs) It's because she recognized that her hope was in God. And even in understanding the limitations of her husband, she respectfully understood that her posture towards him mattered. Faith rewrote the history of Sarah, and it rewrites our history too. It gives us an understanding of where we actually put our faith and how that actually matters. And it's this hope in God which the women of old used to adorn themselves with. You see, ultimately, I want you to hear this. God isn't asking any of you wives to simply submit to your husbands. He's asking you to submit to him. And that looks like submitting to your husband. My wife knows I'm sinful. She knows I'm going to make mistakes. And if her hope is exclusively in my ability to make good leadership decisions which bring us to the promised land, then that puts her in a foolish and dangerous place. But the hope of a submissive wife is not in the husband who fails. It's in the God who doesn't. The hope of gospel submission is the same for a wife who has a believing husband and a wife who doesn't. The experience might be the same, 
A believing husband ought to, and we'll see that, ought to encourage and, and support this hope. But ultimately, if you are a wife saved by the gospel of grace, your posture towards your husband is actually an extension, not of the worth of your husband, but of the worth of the God who saved you. And his faithfulness to work for your good, even when it seems things are not. What does it look like? This is what we see in verse 6. What does it look like to hope in a God who fails? It looks like submitting to husbands who will. And we trust God with that. Now, I want to give a quick aside here to the wives. Peter is writing specifically to individual conduct here. He is saying, if this is your circumstance, wife, this is how you are to act, which means this. He has not exhausted what it looks like to deal with sin in the confines of marriage. If you read this passage and you say, this is it, I got it, I don't need any help, and go, you're going to be exhausted, you're going to be hurt, you're going to get into a bad place. Because even here, Peter says, if you do this, you are one of the daughters, plural, of Sarah. I mean, you are part of a long line of godly women who are also here to help you and to encourage you and to remind you that this is for your good. And so in your fight with sin in marriage, the church works alongside you. There are all sorts of other imperatives that we're to do when it comes to sin and submission and, and help. The church is to bear one another's burdens. The church is to admonish the idol. The church is even to discipline believing husbands who refuse to repent or change their behavior. So again, be part of the church. Invite others into it. Share your burdens with other ladies in your community group. Talk to elders or church staff. Because this isn't exhausting all the ways in which you're supposed to act or all the ways in which you can care for your husband. It's describing the posture you have when you encounter those things with your husband. And help limit such moments, Peter now is going to turn and begin to admonish the husbands. And this only makes sense because it's God's ideal that a godly wife finds joy in submitting to her husband because her husband seeks to care for her in the way that God designed. This is the second point this morning. Husbands are to live with the grace of the gospel. Read with me verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Just as wives are called to submit, uh, called to a hope in God which calls them to submit to their husbands, so husbands are called to submit themselves to God's commands for them. No one finds themselves outside of authority. Every Christian finds himself under authority. We just relate to those authorities uniquely how God would decide. Now, Peter calls wives weaker vessels here. And again, he's not saying women are any less valuable or less Christian. Instead, he's acknowledging two things. One is a generalization, and one is universally true. Generally speaking, the husband's physically stronger than the wife. And husbands, if you think about it, this is really a paradox that you shouldn't understand. My wife has grown four people in her body. She's a massage therapist, which is a physically demanding line of work. She comes home and she helps the house stay clean. She cares for four kids. She chases three of them around and wrestles them out of weird, awkward places. They get stuck in your home. Kids get stuck. It's weird. You wouldn't think... You think they seek out death. That's what kids do. Um, and so she like wrestles these kids out. She is like 
physically from her body, keeping alive our nursing daughter. And then on top of that, she hauls my dead weight around the house and cares for me and loves me and disciples women in the church. And despite all of that, she still cannot reach the top shelf in our pantry. That's where I come in. You see, God has generally gifted men with physical strength, and that physical strength is always meant to serve, not to subjugate, to care for, and not to threaten. And this is something which is generally true. There are wives who are stronger than their husbands, but there's a universal truth behind this, which is also what Paul is after, and that is that the wife is the weaker vessel because the nature of her willing submission to her husband makes her more vulnerable. Peter in 1 Corinthians 11 calls husbands the head of the wife. This means that by nature of leader and follower, wives are in a unique position to either be cared for or harmed by their husband's leadership. And in light of that weighty truth, Peter turns to the husbands. He says, you husbands live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to her. What are we to understand? I think there's two things in here that Peter wants us to understand. First, he wants you to understand that God has put you in authority over one of his own daughters. If your wife is a Christian, she is a daughter of God, saved by the exact same grace, promised the exact same heaven, loved in the exact same way as God loves you. To treat her as anything less than that, to forget that truth, is to start all of your care, all of your interactions from a wrong place. C.S. Lewis has a famous line that you never encounter a mere mortal. Everyone we meet lives eternally, either in judgment or in glory. How much more do we need to realize that when we interact with our lives, we are interacting with an eternal soul? And God has put you, husband, in a position where you have a responsibility uniquely to care for your wife. That's how God sees her. That's how you should see her. Because we see how God views her, we should secondly, we should seek to understand her. We should seek to know her. It is so cliche for men to say, I just can't understand women. Too bad, God's calling you to. That's what he's calling you to do in this text. And I was thinking this week, and this challenged me, that husbands... If you're not careful, you can love having a wife more than you love your own wife. I want to say that again. Husbands, if we're not careful, we can love having a wife more than we love having, or more than we love our own wife. Meaning you should know your wife. If some invasion of the brain snatcher were to come in and swap her brain out with somebody else's, It should be noticed. We should all pass what I call the Dairy Queen test. I did this the other day. I was a super husband. I was going to surprise my wife with ice cream. Because who doesn't like ice cream? And then I get there and I realize there's no just ice cream button to order. There's a whole menu of all the different kinds of ice cream. And I had to say at this point, I need to know what kind of ice cream. Do I know, do I understand what my wife actually likes. And the truth is, who doesn't like being understood and who doesn't like being honored? 
But are you able to understand the menu board of your wife and know exactly how she is understood? Know exactly how she is honored? Man, Christ knew us in our weaknesses. Hebrews tells us that he is not unable to sympathize with us because he, like us, was tested in every way. Jesus knows you so intimately. Ought we to know our own wives so intimately? Aren't we to care for them from that posture? You see, here's the thing, husbands. Our culture does not like this text. Some for bad reasons, they harden their heart towards God. Some for reasons that they see this modeled poorly in the church and in culture. But we, husbands, have the ability to flip this narrative. When I see this text as a man, I kind of cringe when it comes to preaching on it. Because who wants to get up here and say these things? You sound self-serving. You sound, uh, you know, patriarchal. And yet, husbands, we should want our wives to submit to us. We should want, verse, chapter 3, verse 1, them to be subject to us. This means that they should know when they extend themselves in submission towards us that their weaknesses, their concerns, their vulnerabilities will be cared for. They will be understood. They will be honored by our leadership. And why do we want this? This is the primary question we need to have. As a husband, as a future husband, why do you want your wife to model this to you? It's not because we want to be made much of or because we want to be served. It's because we want our wives to obey Jesus. We want our wives beyond anything else to follow God to the fullest of her ability. We want her to experience the joy of Christ as they enjoy him in the safety of our home. We want our wives to submit to us because we want them to experience the wonderful joy of salvation, not because we want to be pampered. Why do we care about that? Because Jesus has pampered us. Jesus has given you the only service, the only love you ever need. And so we, in love, get to lay down our lives for our spouses. Philippians 2 says this, Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You, husbands who are heads, you are a head. You are a leader. There is an order which God himself has given, and yet, do you consider your wife as more important than yourself, as modeled by where Philippians 2 goes, saying, this is how Christ treated you. Are you willing to lay aside your own preferences for the sake of her? He's not asking you to abdicate leadership. He's not asking you to stop being a head. He's asking you to be a head like Christ was to the church. Is she a co-heir? If, if she is a co-heir of grace with you, then don't you want to lead your family and your home in such a way where she joyfully lives out that faith, where she actually can step out and obey Jesus and find it to be easier and easier and more rewarding and more rewarding? So at the end of the day, she doesn't look back and say, what a good husband that I have. At the end of the day, she looks back and says, Christ has never abandoned me. Following Jesus is the greatest thing. 
And you have the ability to help your wife follow Jesus by caring for her how Christ cared for you. This is the context of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her. That is to help her obey having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Husbands, stop worrying about how you will experience love or respect in your home because if you obey Christ, all of that will follow. Maybe not from your wife, but your wife is not what justifies you. Your wife is not what saves you. The response of your wife is not what brings you peace. Just as Christ loved the church so that she might grow in holiness, you husbands are to live with your wives in such a way where she grows in holiness. Ladies, single ladies, find a man who loves in you the things that God loves in you and wants to nurture those and see those grow. Because all marriage is, is long-form discipleship. It's discipleship with one person for the rest of your life. It's wives helping their husbands follow Jesus by winning them and even standing as a witness against them with their action. It's husbands helping their wives follow Jesus by helping them follow Jesus in all of things. If you're one who's wondering, working in campus ministry, we get this question a lot. Should I be thinking about marriage with so-and-so? Should I be dating so-and-so? Here's the litmus test. Are you discipling people? Are you zealous for discipleship? If all marriage is is helping each other follow Jesus in all of life through the gospel, then the barometer of if you should be married isn't in your bank account or isn't in your age. It's in your ability to help another person follow Jesus because marriage will expose that. You men, you go to the gym and you could do those crunches, but ultimately, your wife doesn't care about your stunning six-pack if you're neglecting her own spiritual care. So it addresses our priorities. If you're a new Christian, you say, well, can I never get married at this point in life because I'm not discipling people? Do you have a hunger for discipleship? Because not only is marriage helping people follow Jesus, it's being willing to be helped in following Jesus. Sometimes in marriage, we like to think our spouse doesn't, doesn't need to help us here, but the spouses always help each other follow Jesus in all of life through the gospel. Husbands, God wants you to know your wife and love her in this way because this is the way Jesus loved you. And what a privilege to be loved by Jesus, isn't it? Do our wives say the same thing in our own home? And in places where we know, because we know ourselves, where we don't love like Jesus, what a great opportunity to point in our repentance to the husband who never fails. The husband who finally and effectively presents clean Jesus Christ. Everything the husband does shows the value of the gospel. How serious is this? How serious does God take this? Look back at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way 
showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Tim Keller is a pastor in Manhattan. He and his wife, Kathy, wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And there's a story I read in the book that I've never forgotten. And it was in this hard season of their life, and Tim was having a hard time hearing, listening, caring for Kathy. So he came home from work one day, and Kathy was standing in the kitchen, and she just started throwing dishes onto the ground. And they started breaking. So what do you think Keller does? He runs over, he says, sweetheart, what's wrong? She looks at him and says, are you ready to listen now? She had tried time and time again to get her husband's attention to address lapses of care and lapses of grace. But now it took a shattering of a handful of plates to get him to listen. Husbands, do not miss the weight God places here. When you forget to treat your wife in an understanding and honoring way because she's a co-heir of grace with you, God will stop listening to you. The heavens will clash shut until you realize the misrepresentation of Christ you're providing to your wife, to your kids, to your church, and to your community. That's how significant your role is. Husbands, do you want a better relationship with Jesus? Do you want a deeper prayer life with the king? Love your wives better. Know Jesus more by experiencing the weight Jesus gave to care for you. And then go to him in your weaknesses. Go to him in your moments of need. You see, marriage is not easy. And in the eyes of God, it's an incredibly important thing, both for the individual to understand, but also for the watching world to see. But there's hope. Hope that something as weighty as marriage can be endured because of the burden of the gospel in your own heart and the grace of Jesus, which calls us to goodness even when life is hard. To those of you in here, who are married, the gospel's sufficient to help you. To those of you in here who are unmarried, the gospel is sufficient to satisfy you. May we together, in whatever stage in life the gospel finds us, may our conduct always proclaim the goodness of Jesus who has married us by the costly sacrifice of his own blood. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray today for the myriad of hearts that are in here. Hearts that are encouraged by this message, hearts that are perhaps excited, hearts that are broken, hearts that are wounded, hearts that are frustrated. But Lord, we know that we can consider Christ in all of this, that he has not abandoned us, that he has secured for us an eternal value which is imperishable, unfading, and kept in heaven for you, for us. Christ is for us in all things. So help us to love others in a way where they might see that. Be with the wives of this church that they might distinctly love their husbands modeling the way Christ has loved us. That the husbands might lead their churches 
as Christ led the church, or lead their wives like Christ led the church. In all things, Lord, might you be glorified, and might we experience at every turn the wonderful riches of Christ's love for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.